This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. I talked with Eric Whitaker recently about his 30-year career. He's been reflecting back on his career and how he never really imagined that he would be a classical choral composer. I mean, he truly thought he was going to be a pop singer. Well, his life has taken an interesting course, and he's still realizing his dreams. And that's what this recording is about. It's called Home, and it's his first time collaboration with the British ensemble Vocious 8. That's what we hear about this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Eric, what does it feel like to be celebrating three decades as a composer? <laughs> well, when you say it like that, <laughs> um, it's surreal. It's it's surreal. I mean, first, I can't believe it's been three decades. You know, I feel like I blinked and 31 years has gone by. But also, I, I think if I could travel back in time and tell my 20-year-old self, this will be your life. You'll be a classical choral composer. I just never could have imagined it. What did you think you were going to do? I mean, when you were, you know, back in college in Nevada, did you have other plans? <laughs> I did. I, I, I had two big plans. One was to be an astrophysicist, and the other was to be a pop star. And uh, it turns out astrophysics, you need some serious math, which I definitely don't have. And, and the pop music, that's really, you know, I didn't read music until I was 18. And I played in pop bands and, and I thought that's what I was going to do. And then David Weiler, the conductor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, pulled me into choir. And the first piece I sang was the Requiem by Mozart. And that's it, it changed my life. And again, I couldn't have imagined that I would be composing choral music, but the, one, of the, one of the pieces on this album, uh, Go Lovely Rose, it's the very first piece I wrote. I wrote it for David. And I remember hearing it being sung live in the room. And that's, that's the day that I knew I was going to be a composer. I want to ask you about that piece because that really says something that you can look back at that very early piece of music and still feel really good about it. Tell me about that piece and why it has withstood the test of time, if you will. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's really poignant what you say, this idea about looking back at it and still being okay with it, right? Because sometimes I look back at a piece of music and it's a little bit like looking at an old 
photograph of myself, you know, and thinking, really, did I used to, did I used to do my hair like that? <laughs> Please tell me I didn't wear that sweater. And um, Go Lovely Rose, I, it's me. It's, it's the closest thing I can think of to capturing who I was when I was 21 years old. It's just every bit of it is just me. There's a kind of optimism and this ache for life and wonder. And at the same time, it's a little melancholy and it's delicate. And it's, it's just, it's how I saw the world, how I guess I still see the world. But somehow it all got captured on the page. It's, it's all there. And so even now when I am performing it, I'm immediately 21 years old again. Your new recording is called Home. Tell me about the title, because we hear the word home Mm. many times throughout this recording. And I'm also wondering if it is connected to the fact that you have found your home in this world of choral music. Yeah, you you nailed it right there. That's exactly what it is. So on one level, it's, as you say, it's home is referenced in a couple of the, the pieces on the album and very specifically in Sacred Veil. Vale, it's the major theme. It's the final words of the entire piece. Welcome home, my child, welcome home. But that for me, choral music and singers and singing and the magic that happens when we're all in a room together making music, that's home. That's, that's sometimes I think there's me, Eric, and then there's my essential self, and that essential self, that's the one who who feels most at home when I'm making music. You're working with a very magical ensemble, one that you have admired for a very long time. Tell me how you and Vachis 8 finally connected, because I'm sure between your schedule and theirs, this was a small miracle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was it. So, I mean, I've been a fan, like a super fan for 15 years, you know, I had all the albums and I, I knew the names of all the different members. And, and we, I guess it was probably about three years ago, we, we were able to finally clear some time in our schedules and say, okay, let's do a thing together. We're going to do this and this. We didn't know what, but let's just do something. And then the pandemics hit and that was it. And so for two years, we were just kind of bouncing back and forth with maybe this, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. And then finally, when, as you say, when we got our schedules together, we decided that we would do what they call Live from London. And, you know, they started this whole thing during the pandemic where they were giving these concerts streaming over the internet. And that I would fly out to London and work with them. And that's just all we would do. And 20 seconds into the rehearsal session for that, we realized, oh my God, we need an album. We need to be making an album. So we changed all of the days of that schedule and then added some more days later on and said, yep, let's, let's make an album. Let's do this for real. It was, uh, it's hard to describe how quickly and, and deeply our relationship blossomed as soon as we could be in the same room together. What do you admire the most about this British ensemble? <sighs> well, on one level, it's just their technical acumen. 
they're spectacular musicians, you know? They, they sing with such purity, with such clarity. They sing so selflessly as a group, but there's this, this deeper thing going on, this kind of emotional intelligence that they have that I knew from the albums, but I didn't really know until I was in the room with them. And it, it, it's almost impossible to talk about. There's, they're communicating terabytes of emotional information when they sing. And one of the great experiences of my life was over the course of recording with them, was just having the best seat in the house, was standing in front of them, and then hour after hour having this, their sound. And not just the music, but the that emotional understanding wash over me. It's, it's kind of unlike anything I've ever experienced. In the liner notes to this recording, you made a comment, this is how I always dreamed it would sound. Yeah. Tell yeah. me more about that. That's exactly it. So especially with Go Lovely Rose, you know, it was 31, 32 years ago that I wrote it. And there's a version in my head that is always playing that's, you know, that I've always mentioned, it would be like this and it would be like this and it would it would have a little bit of this, a little bit. And I remember the first time we sang through it all together and I thought, oh my God, that's, that's... It actually replaced the version in my head, if you know what I mean. So now when I think about the way it should sound, it's just that recording. That's one of the the great advantages that Focus 8 has over most other choirs is they're so small. It's only eight voices. So they have this nimbleness and it feels like solo voices. And at the same time, you get that, that rich, warm wall of sound. And my music, I think, really shimmers in that environment, right? You hear those close harmonies and the, the textures and, and there's something about the transparency of just eight voices, but then the, the strength and the purity of them that, yeah, I don't, it causes these clouds of overtones that, at least for me, while I'm, while I'm making the album, just, um, you know what frizzin is? You know, the, the chills down your spine, are just endless chills down my spine. Give me an example on this recording in a piece where you experience that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, let me think where a perfect example of this is. Okay, so in Home, which is the third movement of the Sacred Veil, Tony's words that he wrote about his wife, I asked him to describe falling in love with her, and he says he remembers looking at her, and she was talking, this was on their second date, and the words popped into his head, you feel like home which to me is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard said about describing someone you're in love with. So in that movement, the music is so delicate. And then there's this slow burn blossom of what love feels like, of that first blush of love as it sort of just lifts you out of your body. And it has to be handled so delicately by the musicians. It has to, there's this first blush 
and then there's a second blush, and then there's this third blush, and it can't be overwrought, it can't be dramatic, it can't be climactic, it just has to be right. And I remember when we were recording it for the album that we got to that moment and I just wanted to die. When we get to the third time that they sing, you feel like home. I just, that was it. I was like, okay, I can retire now. And if I'm remembering correctly, you recorded this, was it in 2019? That's right, with the, with the people who commissioned it, with the Los Angeles Master Chorale. And I want to remind our listeners that the work was written by you and your friend, your longtime collaborator, Tony Silvestri. And it's about the journey he went on as his wife was battling cancer and eventually succumbed to it. And I'm thinking about you all recording this. Was it during the pandemic? You did it during the pandemic, right? Oh, so amazingly, we, we made the recording just before the pandemic with Los Angeles Master Chorale. Right. And then, but with Vachis 8, you did this during the height of the pandemic, right? We did it just as the pandemic was winding down. So not until spring of 2022 basically a year ago. But what's funny is it was supposed to be earlier. And even then we were, I got sick, I got COVID, so I couldn't go. Then one of the singers got sick. And so they could, so we just kept, it was like start and stop, start and stop. And then finally able to be in the same room together. Well, what I'm thinking, when this recording first came out, this music was first revealed. It was very powerful. Obviously, it's a very powerful piece. It's a powerful story. So many people can identify with who have suffered grief in their own life. And I'm wondering if it took on even even more meaning or a newer meaning after the worst of the pandemic. It so did. It's a really insightful question. I think for me... I remember the first several times that I was back conducting a group after the pandemic. It was two full years before I could stand in front of a group. And I was just, I, I would fight back tears just, just hearing the sound, just because I've spent a life in music and a life with singers and I never fully appreciated how fortunate I was and how ephemeral it all is never possibly occurred to me that that could just evaporate and suddenly the world would stop singing all at the same time. And so then going to record The Sacred Veil with that new outlook, I now feel the same way about love and life, that it's not permanent. It's it's very transient. It's very ephemeral. It just, it's like gossamer. It'll just evaporate one day when you least expect it. And so the making of The Sacred Veil this time, I was hyper aware of just being present for the beauty in my life right now. Just be here for this now. I was present in a way that I, I couldn't have been way back in 2019. Barnaby Smith, the artistic director for Vachas 8, noted that at one point during the recording of The Sacred Veil, pretty much everybody had a moment. Can you describe what that moment was for you? Yeah, it's it's funny that... 
I lived with those those poems and with the story for so many years, writing it and and then actually seeing Julie go through that, seeing Tony as well. And I've I've been over that so many times that the moments now in the piece that that hit me the hardest are the ones that I'm that are unexpected, and they're the most human in a way. And there's this this moment where we're using Julie's words. Three of the movements use Julie's actual words, and she was writing to her friends. And saying, I've just received news tonight that there's, uh, that the cancer has really metastasized. And the doctor says, I've got about two months to live. And then she says, I'm asking you to pray that I will be healed in a miraculous way. Don't pity me. Don't, don't feel sorry for me. I need you to pray. Julie was a very, very religious woman. And what struck me about that in the recording when we were making it is that I remember Julie. I, re I could see her face as we were, we were singing and making music. And Julie was the kind of person who would never ask for anything. She wouldn't even ask for a cup of sugar if she needed it for, for a cake. She was always, always giving. And that she'd come to a point in her life where she was not only asking, she was pleading with her friends, please help me, don't give up on me, save me. This, this was extraordinary to me. And I, I, I got to know Julie in a way, in that moment, in a, deeper than I ever could. And I remember during rehearsal or during the recordings when we got to that moment, and she says those words, don't give up on me. And I just, I just broke down. I just couldn't. It's so honest and human and beautiful and sad and real. Um, it's just, just nowhere to go. There is a world premiere on this recording, All Seems Beautiful to Me, and it's based on a Walt Whitman poem. And this one is written in five flats. I don't know if that has meaning to you or not. I think it was your first piece was written in five sharps or something. <laughs> so now <laughs> oh, you're going funny. the other direction. I hadn't put that together, but that is really funny. No, that's great. And Barnaby Smith said that it feels like putting on your favorite, most comfortable pair of boots mm. to perform this piece. Why do you think he says that? I love, love, love that. To me, that's the ultimate compliment when a singer uses the words like comfortable. <laughs> right, because the the idea is that it's it's singable, that it's in the body, that it it just sounds and feels just like it it's supposed to. That's that's high high praise, especially from from Barney. Um, to me, what I was trying to find is just this delicate, this delicate compassion that the Walt Whitman writes about in this piece. This was another pandemic piece. It was commissioned to be performed once we got outside the pandemic. 
And I was asked to write about community. And so I found this from Songs of the Open Road by Walt Whitman. And the final lines are, whoever denies me, it shall not trouble me. Whoever accepts me, he or she shall be blessed. And shall bless me. And for me, that sums up everything that I hope for a compassionate society. I think we've become hardened now to others. And, and I think even Walt Whitman knew 160 years ago that the path forward is through acceptance. Hmm. And grace, maybe. And grace, especially grace. Conscious Eight recorded the Seal Lullaby on their 2013 recording, Eventide, and they're recording it again <laughs> on this new recording, Home. Why are they doing it again? Well, it's funny because we, we've also talked about going back and they've, they've recorded several of my pieces before, but I say this with deep humility, but not with me conducting. They usually perform without a conductor. You know, that's, that's, it's just the eight of them. But we found this way of dancing together where I'm conducting and they're singing and they're doing their thing and I'm doing my thing. And it fits so well. It's a little bit like that comfortable pair of boots that Barney talked about. So we immediately, as we started to put together this album, we thought, oh, well, let's definitely do these because the versions that are out there aren't all of us together in the same room. And I think if you listen to the, the two of them, they're wildly different interpretations. subtle, but just it just makes me think as we're talking, I can't wait to get back in the studio and record more things with them. Sing Gently became a virtual choir phenomenon in 2020 during the pandemic with more than 17,000 singers from 129 different countries. And really, when I, I was just thinking about this, how you were way ahead of the, the virtual choir thing, right? Like way before the pandemic and when everybody was doing it. So you, you did this during the pandemic and then you did it with just these eight singers. Tell me about, about that and the difference and why you decided to take this big, massive sound and pare it down into just these eight singers for this recording. Well, that was it. So during the pandemic, the only way we could make music was, was virtually and choirs around the world were doing it. As a side note, that was a very surreal experience for me. You know, this thing that we'd been doing for 10 years suddenly became a necessity. It never occurred to me that that would happen. And it's the only premiere of a piece that I've written in my entire career that I wasn't present for. It was Sing Gently, right? Because the people who sang it were from all over the world and they were all sending in their parts and we made this virtual experience. I've never 
written a piece, had it performed, and not been there in person with the group who's, who's performing it. So my first chance to hear it live was with Vocious 8. So you can imagine it, it being conceived for 17,000 singers, this anthem of, of gentleness and compassion. And then now it's just us alone in this room singing it. It had deep, deep meaning for me because then it, it signified in a way that we were back. Like we were, we were finally back together and doing what to me is the the greatest art form there is, which is simply getting together in a room and singing. And you wrote the text for this. Tell me about the text. So this was another situation where during the pandemic, this was very early days, and immediately I saw that that's just the fabric of society was starting to tear. I was really worried about it. And I thought the only way that that we get through this is working together, is being compassionate, is with empathy, being gentle. And I I love the metaphor of sing gently as a, as a way of describing, here's how we should be living together. And so the poetry is all about that. It's just a simple blessing that may we sing together, may we sing as one, um, may we use our music to keep others aloft. Eric, now that you're having a chance to reflect over your past three decades of your career, what have you discovered about yourself that maybe has even surprised you? There's, I'm going to quote Walt Whitman. I, I hope this is true about myself, but this is from All Seems Beautiful to Me. This is poetry that he usually says, I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. I'd like to think that about myself. I'd like to know, like to think that slowly there are these reservoirs of goodness that are, that are unfolding. I hope that's true. I want it to be true. Eric Whitaker, celebrating the collaboration with Vocious 8 on his new recording, Home. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Uh-huh.